Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis. Mike McIntyre will be joining me later in the program. You can follow me on Twitter at BenLewisSN590. You can follow us at MatchPointCan on Twitter, and we're also on Instagram at MatchPointCanada. Well, Sunday would have been our Indian Wells final. So much has transpired since then, of course, on a global scale in terms of the severity of the coronavirus pandemic. We've had major changes to our tennis season, too. The ATP and WTA have officially suspended play until June 7th at the earliest, though I have to think even that could be wishful thinking. The French Tennis Federation made a unilateral move, shifting their Grand Slam event from June to September 20th to October 4th, just a week after the U.S. Open. The Olympic Games schedule for Tokyo, Japan this summer have now officially been postponed. They are moving back to 2021, while the Italian Tennis Federation has also announced their intention to reschedule its ATP and WTA events in Rome. Well, how do we make sense of it all for that? So happy to be joined this week by tennis correspondent for the New York Times, a longtime international sports columnist and a terrific writer, Chris Clary. Christopher, thanks so much uh, for joining the program this week. Hi, Ben. I'm not sure there's any making sense of all this, but we'll give it a shot. (laughs) (laughs) We'll, uh, We'll do our best. It's all we can do, right? Um, just, uh, I, I guess to, to begin, uh, obviously with, with this hiatus and it feels like it's been so much longer than just one tournament we've missed, but what have the past couple of weeks looked like for you as a journalist? Well, you're right about that, Ben. I think the thing is, I mean, Indian Wells final for, for both would have been yesterday, you know, would have finished up last night. And that just seems unthinkable considering all that's transpired in the last, uh, 10 days in the world and, you know, on a much more minor note in, in tennis, it's just uh, it's an extraordinary period in history and a very troubling period, obviously. But for me, I mean, I was like many people, I was kind of caught uh, by surprise. I know Indian Wells was certainly considering some changes, but didn't seem to be an imminent cancellation based on my reporting. And I was out in San Francisco with my oldest daughter and my family getting ready to drive to Indian Wells to start the uh, start the coverage and um, obviously got the news that was made very quickly. And then since then I was kind of more or less stuck on the West coast until just a few days ago and made it back to the East coast. And we're settling in here. The Massachusetts uh, governor, I'm based out of Boston. It's just uh, basically called for a lockdown, stay at home uh, situation for residents here. So it's a huge change for everyone. And the tennis circuit is, uh, you know, very much uh, in flux and limbo and there's been a lot of tensions. Yeah, and certainly when when you're a journalist as well covering these events, there's a lot of travel, a lot of writing. We have match scores coming through all the time. Uh, I know we're sort of actively tracking all of that, and it feels like such a drastic change. In what way, I guess, are are you keeping busy and maybe trying to find some positives during this this tough time that really every everyone is going through? I think we're all, you know, in the sports uh, journalism side of things, we're basically all we're covering the great unwinding is kind of what it is. I mean, it's basically all this all this activity and human activity and sport and other things is unwinding and, and shutting down. And that in itself is news. And I think also how the major players and major actors in the sports are, and in tennis are acting right now and how they're responding to this is, is newsworthy as well. You know, be it Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal and Djokovic going on social media, you know, giving signs of encouragement to people, or if it's uh, tournaments trying to figure out a way to still exist in this environment. 
And as you said before in your introduction, Ben, I mean, the Italian Open wants to try to reschedule, but they are far from alone. There are many tournaments that are hoping against hope and probably against the odds to be able to find a way to squeeze in here in 2020. And I think it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, I think it's going to be a major challenge. And we, we of course, essentially saw the, the clay court season as it exists and as regular, regularly scheduled completely scrapped. Uh, for now, we have the grass court season in, in place. Um, that, that scheduling hiatus between now and June 7th uh, of all the events there, were, were you scheduled to, to cover several of those? And is there a favorite maybe that you're really going to miss the most? Oh, I was definitely going to be out there. I was uh, obviously Indian Wells was, you know, pretty much start to finish, and I was going to be down in Miami for the end of that. And I was planning on going to Madrid, and also um, cover the Fed Cup Finals in Budapest and the French Open. So it was a busy schedule, and I don't think we're done canceling yet. I I'm personally going to be very surprised if we're able to pull things off on schedule in the grass court season as well. Even though those calls probably won't come until, you know, late mid to late April. I don't think. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about the French Open news because I, I know you wrote about it uh, that the federation did uh, make a what you could be called what could be called a bold decision to push their tournament to the final week of September then into October and uh, we know they they didn't do any consultation here they didn't talk to other tours uh, they didn't talk with the players I, I guess before we get into the optics of all of that do you think that is something that is actually feasible? You mean for them to be able to pull that off in that time of yes, year and do it yes, that way? Yes, exactly, yeah. You know, it is possible in the sense that um, the weather in, in France is not uh, going to be probably quite as warm, I don't think, or and the days aren't going to be as long as they would be in its usual time slot, that late May, early June slot, um, which, by the way, has been nasty weather, <laughs> as you probably remember, yeah. for many of the last few years. So I'm not sure that's a bad trade in terms of just the climate. And they have now installed uh, lights, and if they can actually get their roof on the main court, the Philippe Chatrier court, done uh, by September, which is another issue. We should go back to that as well. Um, if they can get that done, then they're going to have lights in all their main courts, which they haven't uh, had in the past, and they'll be able to uh, to play into the evening. And they're going to need to because it gets dark quite a bit earlier that time of year. So it is possible. And if they're going to have a roof over center court, they'll be able to at least make the second week work if things get nasty with the weather, which is possible. But is it optimal? Hardly. And it's certainly uh, the term that's been used is land grab. That's the one I've heard the most in the last uh, week, and I think it's an appropriate one. And uh, you've had you've had the opportunity to, to speak with some players. I, I saw one player had said uh, the, the FTF, they asked for forgiveness, not permission, uh, which makes me wonder, do you believe this ever would have been agreed upon if, if they had brought this request forth? Yeah, that was from John Worthon's reporting. It was an anonymous anonymous player, but it, it has the ring of it has the ring of truth to it. Um, that's exactly what happened. I mean, they I think they felt that they went into dialogue and uh, extensive discussion. There was no way they're going to get approval for that kind of a move, um, based on all the other uh, people already in that uh, landscape, including the Labor Cup, including the Wuhan Open, which is a very symbolic event for the WTA and a pretty important event. And I think they were heading toward at least trying to make that happen, despite all the optics of that, considering that's where the coronavirus originated. So it's, um, it's a lot of people already in that spot. And I think the Grand Slams, you know, would also wanted to preserve their own liberty of movement. And I think Wimbledon and the U.S. Open are well aware the situation could drag on. They may need to move themselves. So for the French Open to move into that spot like that uh, without consensus was really a, not just a bold move, but a slightly desperate move, I would say, and, and I think a, a very selfish move in a lot of ways.
Do you think uh, any? Do you think any players could could get on board with this idea though? And then it makes me wonder. And this is fingers crossed, kind of best scenario that we do get three Grand Slam events because obviously that is up in the air. But say we do get the U.S. Open as scheduled, and then the French Open a week following. Do you think a lot of top players are are basically going to have to pick and choose between those two? You know, I think people can pull off the U.S. Open and the French Open because, let's face it, I mean, you're looking at two major, major tournaments back-to-back with a potentially week in between and probably more for most of the players, obviously, because they're going to go out earlier. You're talking about just the elite that goes down to the, the final bid in the U.S. Open. They're going to have a really hard turnaround. Going back to clay after playing hard court is not ideal for the body, not ideal for the quality of play either. Tough transition. But I think because of the fact that in a year that's going to be so drastically shortened, um, these are major paydays for the players. As you know, I mean, a first-round loss is probably 60000 U.S. Um, at the Grand Slams now. And if you're a player who's trying to uh, you know, make it on tour, you need that payday, and you're going to need it even more in 2020. So to be honest with you, the, the theory behind this and the principle behind it, which is preserving the Grand Slam tournaments, the four of them, is the right theory. Uh, if you're going to preserve anything in a, in a completely uh, chaotic calendar, you need to preserve those four as much as you can both for the fact they have that media reach and for the fact that the best paydays for the players are there. But the way it was done was wrong, and I think that if they would sat around the table, they would have had a much better outcome uh, for the long term of the game. But I think the players will go along with it in general. I think the Lever Cup will probably have to try to find a way to either move or get by with a you know, much more uh, <laughs> sort of symbolic presence from Roger Federer or maybe a couple other players. But it's, uh, it's a tough situation, but the way it was handled was wrong. Yeah, and I was just about to get get to that because uh, the the French Open, as scheduled now, it is completely overlapping with Labor Cup, and uh, we we already know they they have a sold out venue in Boston, and this is something that Roger Federer's uh, really grown over the past few years. It's hard to picture that event goes forth without him there, but uh, I, I'm assuming Roger Federer would would want to attend Labor Cup, but can he get any big names to come with him if it's happening during a Grand Slam? That'll be the problem. Um, I do think, and I've heard some people tell me in the last, uh, you know, few days that Labor Cup, which is, as your listeners would know, is you know it's a three-day event um, with only basically 12 players involved, very elite players, obviously, but 12 players. Um, I really think Roger isn't planning on playing clay this year for a lot of reasons. I don't think he would play the French Open uh, against this event that he's created. I think if they go up with that uh, schedule as it stands. He'll play Labor Cup, and frankly, his you know charisma and aura is enough probably to carry the event in Boston with a kind of an assorted cast. I don't know what he would do, but uh, with a three-day situation, even though we all know that the autumn in North America is going to be crazy for all indoor arenas like the TD Garden in Boston just because of the demand with the Bruins and the Celtics and everybody else when they come back to play, um, they may be able to sneak in those three days at a different date. It is possible, but uh, even without it, I think Roger will prioritize the lever cup over over that french open situation but it's it's going to be a tough thing and i and i really feel like the way they put it on the calendar frankly you know considering everything else that's going on probably was the best place as long as lever cup was able to find a, a home somewhere else or some other time of the calendar but there are no perfect solutions here ben nothing at all and this is a imperfect approach and and badly handled yeah, uh, and really desperate solutions. It it's, seems like what we're grasping at at this point. Uh, as we talk today, Wimbledon is presently scheduled to begin June 29th, and I, I know actually a memo was uh, grabbed from the ATP as well uh, saying that grass court events are hopeful 
as of now to go on as scheduled. Um, you look at the grass court schedule and you look at the number of coronavirus cases we have emerging in the United Kingdom, which is, of course, where uh, Wim- not only Wimbledon is, but where a number of key grass court events are. Is this any way possible, do you, do you think, to get the calendar back on track by, by mid-June or or is that very wishful thinking? You know, it's possible, but improbable, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I do think, you know, it's... Um, it's a situation where they're right to, to wait a while and not just immediately pull the uh, ripcord on these things. Olympics is a different deal, and that's, that's a much more massive, complicated event with lots of moving parts and huge qualifying that has to take place around the world for these various sports, a whole different animal. But a Grand Slam is one sport. You follow the rankings for qualification. Um, it, it can be pulled off at shorter notice. And it's certainly it's a huge a huge event in the in the world and, and British sporting calendar in terms of Wimbledon especially. So I think they'd want to try to wait till the last reasonable moment. And I, the memo that I saw talked about those decisions being made about the grass court season in in late April, which would give them what you know about six weeks right. out from that uh, time to make that decision, or a little bit more for Wimbledon. Obviously, I think that's uh, I think that's right. And I don't think we should be making those choices now, but I, I personally would be surprised to see the grass court season go off without a hitch. And I know you're not in, inside the room for these meetings, but uh, is the scenario maybe being discussed pretty frequently of, of running these events without fans? Is it something players would be willing to do? Well, the problem with that, and that was my initial reaction as well. I know that was deeply considered for Indian Wells, for example, because they already had everything in place. Everybody was already there. Um, and then that comes along with the health warnings and, uh, they thought it through, and I think the conclusion that they came to, I initially thought it was for insurance reasons. Um, that if you held the event without fans, you'd have no chance of getting an insurance uh, payoff. I've been told since then that's not the reason why. And the main reason is because you're just trying to preserve the liberty of movement of the players, because if the players get stuck and they can't get inside and outside of countries or across borders at some point to get to tournaments, you know, you're, you're losing your uh, <laughs> your key entertainment product there, mm-hmm. and it's making it a unlevel playing field. And then, of course, you've got the issue of even if you're having no fans, you still have a lot of volunteers and people that are there trying to make the tournament happen, potentially ball kids and uh, people working uh, the concessions for the players and everything else. And in the world we're living in now, any kind of gathering of people seems to be uh, off limits. So already you're in some governmental edicts, you're going against the rules there. So I think... For those main reasons, that's why they kind of went against that approach. And you can even see it in Europe with some of the uh, soccer matches and sports that have been initially played uh, without fans. They're shutting those down now, too. So I, I have to say one thing, but i, I got to give the Indian Wells organizers a great deal of credit. They, they decision was not an easy one when they made it, and it was the right one. Yeah, certainly. And it, it did come at the last moment, but uh, certainly better late than never, uh, given what's transpired. And we know how, how quickly and rapidly this, this virus can spread. Uh, another decision that we saw come about in the past week, and I didn't think it was going to happen a couple weeks ago, was was a ranking freeze, uh, which is something I have never seen on the ATP and WTA. And it, it wasn't something we had actually really discussed on the podcast as a possibility. Uh, but I personally think it's, it's probably a good thing and a protection for players is that sort of the thought do you think amongst the tours at this point yeah i mean i think it's a bit of the democracy issue where it's a, you know it's the worst form of government except for everything else right i think that's kind of the way it is um and i don't think there was a really great decision to be made there but i think it is in some ways at least it's clear the players who played indian wells last year and did very well you know 
like Team, for example, or Bianca Andreescu, you're not penalizing them when they have no opportunity to make those points back up again. Obviously, there are other players who you know are still going to be highly ranked who haven't had a good result in a long time. But I think this is the best compromise. I was thinking for sure they would go with a protected ranking of some sort when they resume play. Maybe they let the rankings move uh, to some degree to reflect uh, the falling off results, but they'd keep a PR. But I think that's very confusing for the public, and I think it uh, they just went with a more you know clear decision that's more legible to everybody. And uh, as long as it doesn't last six months and last more like two or three, I think they'll be okay. But you know, obviously, if it goes on for a long, long period of time, it's going to be tricky with all the uh, the math and the and the points that are going to be coming off quickly. Yeah, exactly. If it's if it's hard for for the the experts to wrap their heads around, you think it would be very challenging for France to to make sense of it. So uh, I think the rankings freeze is the best solution. I'm uh, just wondering, have, have you spoken with many players just just over, I guess, this break to to see how they're they're coping with everything and if they're able to to really maintain some regular training regimen or routine of any kind. I talked to a few, yeah, definitely. I, uh, one of the most recent conversations I had was with Tennis Sangren, uh, a U.S. player, semifinalist. Uh, I mean, yeah, quarterfinalists are at the Australian Open this year with that all those match points against Roger Federer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tennis is uh, feeling pretty good that he had that uh, <laughs> good result in Australia because it's giving him a a big payday to help them get through uh, this this fallow period. But a lot of players that are down in those uh, 80s, 90s, 100s or beyond, it's a much, much tougher ask, especially if this goes on, because you obviously have, you know, coaches to pay and and things you've already booked and and uh, your life goes on, but there's no, no chance to make money at any level in tennis right now. You probably can give a few lessons. Maybe people are doing that on the side. But frankly, a lot of public courts in our country in the U.S. are closed right now, so it's hard to even get access to that. So, it's just a really, really uh, unprecedented situation for those players, and that's why it's so important when they do resume that they find a way to maximize the number of possible paydays and possible playing opportunities for everybody as quickly as they can. So I think we're going to see a very, very overstuffed, understandably so, calendar until the end of the calendar year, and we're going to go into the off season as well, I think, with that. And uh, it's going to be a bit of a, a sprint, and I think a lot of other sports are going to be doing the same thing. It'll be a time when <laughs> going from no sports to too many. <laughs> That's uh, No, that really is the best solution when you're, you're talking about. We, we don't focus enough on players probably outside that top 100, even top 200. How are they possibly going to afford making this living as a professional tennis player? We have to squeeze in the challenger events, the 250s. You know, not everybody is qualifying for these br- big Grand Slam events and getting that big payday. So uh, those are the players suffering the most. Uh, just a couple more questions for, for yeah, tennis. Yeah, but Ben, you know, one last thing, too, on that is uh, even yeah. the league tennis in Europe, which has been a big you know, payday for players that are a bit on the cusp of main tour players, the German uh, First Division or the French First Division club tennis, that's all been canceled as well. So right. I mean, there really aren't any havens right now to, to make a living playing the game. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredibly difficult. We we know momentum and confidence certainly is is a big thing in tennis. Just just on the men's side, do, do you think uh, there are any specific players who are actually maybe benefiting from this reset and having a few months off to maybe clear their head and we're going to see them come back playing stronger tennis than ever? I do think so. I think I think it really is a fascinating period because basically you're having almost two off seasons, not back to back, but uh, you know, pretty close together. And this is this period of time, uh, even if it goes back in an optimistic viewpoint in early June, that'll be the longest off season the men or women I think have ever had. Um, so, and that's going to be coming, you know, after playing for a couple of months already. So, the dynamic of that is fascinating. A lot of players, uh, you know, need time to recover more time than they're getting. 
this might be too much time away from the game altogether for sure for a lot of reasons. But for you, this is enough time to be able to toy with your game a little bit if you have a chance to make some changes, experiment a little bit. Um, you got to wonder what it does for the older people, the Roger Federers, who obviously are coming back from knee surgery now, whether it'll help if he goes a bit longer into the grass court season, if it'll give him even more time. Uh, guys like Stan Wawrinka, Andy Murray is trying to get back from his hip injury. There's a lot of players that could you know, find a way to come back fresh and might even extend their careers a little bit. And then you got the young guys who maybe have been playing too much tennis. This will give them a chance to really, really come back fresh and uh, with young bodies be able to go after uh, the big titles. And it, it could make for some tremendous uh, matchups in the next uh, few months when they start to play again. Yes, uh, and, and best-case scenario is we get Grand Slam tennis at all three events. Uh, fingers crossed that it can happen, but uh, we, we know what's going on in the world uh, right now. It's so challenging for everybody. And uh, thank you so much, Christopher, for joining us on the program this week. Hey, Ben. My, my pleasure. hope we see them all back soon, and hope we can see Bianca Andreescu all healthy and, and ready to play her best tennis, too, when yes, this all resumes. That's what we're hoping as well. Thanks so much. Christopher Clary of the New York Times. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. You can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can find us on Instagram at Matchpoint Canada. We are official members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. Well, the Yonix E-Zone Tennis Racket Series delivers unmatched power and comfort for beginners to the world's best athletes like Naomi Osaka and Nick Kyrgios, who have trusted the E-Zone Series for the entirety of their professional careers. With the largest sweet spot in the series history, the arrow-shaped frame produces a plush, more comfortable feel at impact even on your off-centered shots. One lucky Matchpoint Canada listener does have the chance to win an E-Zone racket of your choice. You just have to enter our contest within the next week. All you have to do, enter on Instagram, follow us at Matchpoint Canada, and follow Yonex at Yonex Canada, and post a picture or video or story with the hashtag MatchpointCanadaYonex, and we will randomly select a winner. And now I'm happy to be joined alongside my co-host via phone. You can follow him on Twitter at McIntyre Tennis. Mike, how's it going this week? I wish I was there with you in person, Ben, uh, and not just because it would have been fun to be part of the interview with Chris, but uh, just a little social interaction with other people <laughs> than my wife and kids who at this point are probably getting sick of me. Um, it's uh, it's just interesting times, and uh, as I mentioned to you before we got on the line here, it feels like the movie Groundhog Day, where I just feel like every day it's kind of a repeat of what happened yesterday, especially for me, the, the routine with the kids and trying to get them to now do some schoolwork and some regular sort of exercise and stuff in the house or getting out for a quick walk, and even that's being you know, more and more difficult with the social distancing and, and isolation that's going on, but... Uh, I am happy to be talking to you. I am looking forward to chatting some tennis. This is, uh, you know, one of the, not that it isn't usually, but it's now more than ever one of the highlights of my week because it means I get to interact with another human being I'm not related to. <laughs> well, and it's one of uh, the, the staples, at least, that I think we have going here in our routine because I feel like my regular day-to-day -day routine is, is completely changing. But if we still have that Matchpoint Canada podcast once a week, uh, things still feel comfortable in, in that sense, uh, no matter what is going on uh, around us. 
Yeah, I like some of the comments. Some of the people who are saying they really look forward to it or really enjoying the podcast we're continuing to put out. So that's really encouraging and, and reaffirming. And, you know, we're looking for any positives we can get. So I really appreciate those kind of comments because I don't know about you, but some days I wake up and, and I'm energetic and ready to go. And other days I'm kind of like, oh, man, like how long is this dragging on for and, and what's going to come next? And just the unknown of it can feel kind of overwhelming. So, you know, it is good that some of these things are, are going up there and, and, and also, I've been enjoying your uh, musical um, talents that you've been <laughs> sharing with us. I had no idea. This is like get to know your, your podcast co-host, I guess, through the, uh, the social distancing. But uh, your guitar and singing skills are, are quite something else. And, uh, and I knew you were good with a racket, so it doesn't surprise me that you can hit those targets on the uh, table tennis uh, uh, table you've got at home there. Oh, that's, uh, that's very, very kind of you to say. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, I, I did post one video on uh, Twitter of doing sort of a coronavirus uh, cover song. It, it's all in good fun, trying to uh, give some smiles to us. Well, we're all going through this. I've also started posting a couple videos on Instagram of uh, COVID-19 cover songs to try and uh, lighten everybody's mood through this difficult time. Uh, you can be the judge uh, whether whether or not it's actually any good, but uh, I very much appreciate <laughs> the compliment, Mike. Just uh, promise me, just Ben, promise me you're not going to start doing like those push-up challenges because now I'm seeing some of those and it's like, oh, I just don't have the energy to do this. <laughs> like I'm sitting here in this beer t-shirt from Thailand uh, I purchased 10 years ago in plaid pajamas pants and i'm not even going to tell you for how many days on end so uh, don't get too energetic on me okay 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 that's really funny you say that because literally last night i had a message saying can you participate in the 50 push-up challenge so uh if i do that i'll be sure not to tag you uh thank you yeah yeah you're welcome uh well you know i i had the opportunity to speak with chris clary of the new york times and uh we broke down uh all things in tennis news because we don't have live tennis and uh I think the word that is coming up right now is unknown because there are a lot of aspects to the schedule that we're hopeful could possibly work out, but ultimately we have no idea. Yeah, and, you know, I always enjoy listening to Chris. He's very articulate. He's just got this soothing voice, too. I could listen to him, uh, you know, go on for hours about just about anything I feel like. Uh, he's also come to our rescue, I believe, in the past. I think it was last year that... Uh, we thought we were getting Kevin Anderson, but uh, Kevin had just landed at the airport in New York from South Africa and basically said, like, guys, I can do the podcast, but I'm going to sound like a zombie because I haven't slept in 36 hours. And right. we quickly got on the phone to Chris and he was able to do like a past midnight hit with us from, I believe it was Paris. Yes, so um, that's right. he comes through clutch for us. And again, now in a period of time when, uh, you know, some people are, are easier to reach, but, but others are, are isolating with their family and are focused on other things. So definitely appreciate him joining us and enjoy listening to the interview between the two of you. But, I mean, he, he hits it on the head. It's an extraordinary and, and troubling period, as he said, not just in tennis or sport, but, but in our history. And tennis, as so many other things, are, are in limbo. And that's part of what's so concerning is just not knowing how long this is going to go. If we had a definitive, like, yes, indeed, the tennis season and life in general will resume June 7th, well, wouldn't that be nice to know? And at least we'd have a firm idea of when we can get back to our usual day-to-day. -day. And that's just not the case. This could go on for months and months. This could be the entire tennis season being scrapped. This could be social distancing for who knows how long in the foreseeable future uh, the longer it goes without the curve flattening and things coming to a point where it looks more positive and hopeful, 
the more that's going to get taken away, as was the case with the Olympic Games, unfortunately, as the, the latest casualty in the sporting world. Yeah, and uh, now now we know, we had heard that news that the Olympics were going to be postponed, but we didn't have the clear details. But uh, now it's clear that the Olympics will not be happening in Tokyo, Japan in 2020. They're pushing back to 2021. And you, you think of the number of nations that are competing across the globe in something as, as grand as the Olympics, everybody flying in from everywhere. It just felt like the safe move that they had to push this back. And I, I was a little surprised they hadn't decided this sooner, but I'm very thankful that uh, we don't have to worry about uh, the Olympics for 2020. Yeah, we all knew it was coming when uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee said that they wouldn't be sending Canada's athletes. Uh, I mean, it seemed like the prudent thing to do, but it also seemed like a foregone conclusion that either other nations or the entire event would be uh, cancelled or pushed back. I'm glad it's not cancelled. I'm glad we don't have mm-hmm. to wait now another four years uh, for the Olympics in 2024, uh, the Summer Games, that is. But uh, a year delay, at least, that gives those athletes that were training the, the hope and the uh, you know, affirmation that they will be rewarded with the opportunity competing uh, for all the hard work they put in. Feel bad for them, though. Feel bad for uh, athletes like Gabby Dabrowski, who we had on last week, who, who mentioned how much she looked forward to the Olympics and for her, how it was playing for the kids that were watching at home. And, and you know, those kids are going to have to wait another year to be inspired by athletes and all sorts of sports that we don't normally get a chance to to watch. I'm sure you have those memories of a kid. For me, it was watching Donovan Bailey. It was watching Nestor and LaRoe win doubles gold. Um, all sorts of, of moments like that that just stand out so clearly and distinctly from when we were younger. And, I mean, didn't inspire me to become an Olympic athlete, but definitely gave me a boost of pride in my country and and wanting to follow these athletes and their sports on a more regular basis so uh, we got to wait a year hopefully things will be back on track but absolutely the right thing to do Uh, you know the olympic games would be the the worst possible place uh to have people coming together during a a time like this yeah and it's unfortunate because you feel like the olympics is the ultimate sporting event that unites the globe, right? Because it's competing country by country. Everybody is there and, and we're all united and watching it brings in uh, hundreds of millions of viewers. Uh, but as, as you said, uh, it's the safe move to wait a year. Uh, I think hopefully when we're looking back at this historic event, which is a pandemic right now, uh, hopefully we, we can be looking back right now in 2021 saying, thank goodness we waited and we're all just back to our normal day-to-day lives, uh, enjoying Olympics in 2021. I'll, I'll mention the other week that UEFA made that same decision with the Euro Cup. They decided let's push this back to 2021 and in fact are still keeping the name Euro Cup 2020 and from my understanding the Olympics will be doing the same uh, same thing, keeping that name Tokyo 2020. Almost almost makes you feel like we, let's just write off the entire year 2020. It's just not been a good one. Yeah, well I've got a big birthday coming up this year so if I can delay that by another year I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> Okay, okay. We'll keep that in mind. Uh, plenty, uh, plenty of news that Chris and I hit on in, in our conversation. And uh, one I, I wanted to get, I guess, your point of view on, because we know the French Open change, uh, that they've pushed themselves into the calendar, calendar now for September 20th to October 4th, which would be a week past the U.S. Open. And, of course, crossing over with that three-day event, Labor Cup, which is technically an exhibition event, but... 
you've seen how this team event has grown over the past couple of years, and I know how excited you were uh, to go down to Boston and take it in. So do, do you think they can preserve those dates, the Labor Cup? And if they do, are they going to draw the big names? Yeah, so first of all, the French Open moving. I mean, is this a sneaky move by them, or is it uh, a case of self-preservation? And it's a little bit of both. I mean, you, you can understand any tournament wanting to find a spot later in the calendar to salvage their event if possible, especially one of the magnitude of a Grand Slam uh, in terms of the, the, the money that that's bringing in, uh, money for other tournaments uh, that they can then use for their federations throughout the next calendar year to help their players train, to help their juniors come along and, and develop. So it's totally understandable how vested these events are going to be and how they're going to want to try and find an alternate spot if possible later this year. That being said, I think the way that uh, the French Tennis Federation went about this, and many people clearly agree, is that it was not transparent and it was very self serving and it angered a lot of people between players and and other tournaments that would be going on in Asia at that time for example and of course a certain tennis exhibition that you and, and Christopher talked about being the Labor Cup now normally I think people would just shrug their shoulders and say okay it's a tennis exhibition uh, get over yourselves and host it some other time the Labor Cup is not just a regular tennis exo and that's because it's put on by none other uh, than Roger Federer and uh, I believe in this case, with the French Open moving so closely to the U.S. Open, the change in surfaces, the change in time zones, uh, and, and Federer's um, you know, recent uh, propensity not to play on, on that surface and that event, um, with the exception of last year, I don't think it's going to be a tough one for Roger. I think he's going to skip this uh, newly moved French Open, stay with his Lever Cup, and a guy of Roger's pull and character is going to be able to get others, not necessarily the same star power as previous years, but he's going to be able to convince people to play that Labor Cup. And I'm sure the, uh, the prize money is going to be a big enticing factor that will also uh, you know, be used as, as leverage to accomplish that. For, for Roger, this is something that I think is also a way this Labor Cup of sort of transitioning for himself down the road whenever he does eventually and I'm going to use the R, R word here, but uh, mm -hmm. retire from professional tennis, I don't see him being someone who's going to disappear from sight and not stay involved in the sport. Clearly, he wants the Labor Cup to succeed even after he's done playing professionally. Maybe he'll still play in it, even though he's retired, uh, you know, the first few years uh, post-retirement. But for him, he's not going to be one of those Pete Sampras's who we kind of never hear from again. I think he's going to be very active, and he's very vested in this Labor Cup. So I'm not sure about you, but I see the Labor Cup continuing in uh, whatever form and whatever players they can obtain. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, Labor Cup and French Open, uh, they're not besties right now, given uh, that decision that was made. No, and of course, the, the Labor Cup certainly kind of fired a thinly veiled shot at the French Tennis Federation after uh, they did announce that unilateral move, not consulting anybody. Labor Cup posting on, on their Twitter that they had already sold out the venue and uh, they had no intention to move and uh, sort of commented on the fact that uh, we would always be consulting with the tours and different federations if we were to make a change. Uh, the one benefit, and I, I think a potential change for the Labor Cup, is if they could manage to do it. It's not like a regular tennis event in that it is just three days. And for now, it's scheduled September 25th to September 27th, a Friday to Sunday. So 
if they could find a three-day block somewhere, say, middle of October, later October, maybe that could be feasible. And you're dealing with the TD Garden venue in Boston, so I know you'd also be fighting with, uh, as Chris Clary mentioned, the the Celtics and and the Boston Bruins. Uh, But in terms of an event changing, three-day events are a lot easier to move than a full tournament, at least. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, yeah, I know you and I were both discussing potentially going to see the Labor Cup. I mean, I'd love to go see the French Open at that time of the year if I could, yeah. but it's just too far. And with commitments here, we know that that's impossible for us at this time. But the Labor Cup being closer in a shorter duration, that was something that we had our eye on. Who knows, maybe we'll still get to go and, and do that this year. I, the other thing that needs to be said is this could all still be, be cancelled. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a very high chance, I think, that even if things get under control, people are going to be very tentative and, and who knows how governments, let alone, uh, you know, tournament organizers and, and sporting, um, you know, organizations are going to handle when things do begin to resume. Do we go from self-distancing and self-isolating in groups of less than 10 people or less than five people? Do we suddenly open things up to big stadiums with tens of thousands of people? I don't know if there's sort of a, a slow progression to get back to normal I think there's a very realistic possibility this entire sporting season just gets pushed aside, unfortunately. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. How, how comfortable are people going to be feeling uh, sitting in a stadium uh, with thousands and thousands of people? Uh, another challenge for, I think, both the ATP, WTA, ITF as well, and the challenger circuit to maneuver, if we do get tennis back this calendar season, and uh, Chris also touched on this, is are we going to see a lot of tournaments sort of packed in and we're going to get an absurd amount of tennis towards the tail end of the season to make up for everything that we missed uh the it uh the italian tennis federation for example uh wants to get their rome tournament played this year is that something that will be at all possible we really don't know yet but if there is a scenario where we are back we are out of this pandemic i wonder if we do see uh the tennis calendar suddenly completely jam-packed from say august right till november and if it is jam-packed, and you know, to look on the positive side of that, I mean, you could say, oh, it's going to be a lot of travel and work for the players and whatnot. But I think these players are going to be itching to get back out there. Yes. Not just to get the competitive juices flowing, but to get the, the financial part of things flowing mm-hmm. back into their bank accounts. And, you know, while players like Roger Federer, Serena Williams, and others of that ilk can certainly sustain a prolonged absence of competition, even beyond a year for sure, uh, there are a lot of players who are going to be struggling financially, and for a lot of players, they're going to need to make some money, uh, you know, to come through 2020 in, in one piece, financially speaking. Uh, we definitely feel for those outside of the top 75 to 100 even um, during this tough time. And not just the players, but think about the, the coaches and the trainers and everybody a part of those squads that also are not getting that regular income. This is a difficult period of time for those uh, involved in the sport, and certainly for many of you listening, I'm sure you're going through a tough time too, whether you've been put on hiatus or Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully not laid off or or anything of that sort. But uh, this is a tough time financially for for everybody. So if the tournaments do get back up and running, I can see players saying, yeah, give me as many opportunities to get back out there and, and get back to my business and my craft.
Yeah, certainly. And uh, that that was another topic we did kind of want to hit on, actually, for for this episode of uh, maybe just players on both sides of the tours. Uh, We'll we'll begin with the women's side. Who could actually maybe benefit uh, from a bit of time off right now in terms of their game? Someone who's been struggling, someone who's been injured. And then actually maybe we when we do return to live tennis, uh, could hit the ground running. And the first name that came to mind beyond Bianca Andreescu, actually, uh, is Sloan Stevens, who's had all sorts of trouble uh, really this season going going one and five. And, and that dates back to last year where she had her struggles as well. You, you think a player as talented as her uh, might actually pick up full steam ahead if she gets back on court this season and uh, gets to get her feet under her again. Yeah, it's an interesting point of discussion. Do players who are struggling benefit from having this time off, or would it have been better if they could have just sort of continued to play through it? Uh, it? It depends on the player. For some, a break is probably, yes, benefiting them, and they can take it back down to basics and have this time to retool their games or work on things that, that weren't really clicking for them. You and Chris talked about it. This, this off-season that we're having right now in the middle of the calendar year is turning out to be probably the longest off season that these players have ever had. So, you know, when you stop the season just for basically parts of November and December, it doesn't give players the chance to start from scratch. It's really, uh, you know, take some time to rest, recover, and then get back to training the way they normally would train. Perhaps if we have a longer break here, some players can actually take their game back down to basics and rebuild a few things that aren't working for them. And someone like Sloan Stevens, who you mentioned, is someone that uh, definitely has had a tough go in 2020, the former U.S. Open champion and French Open finalist. Uh, it's been really tough watching her struggle to beat players even ranked in the 100 to 200 range. Mm-hmm. And we know that Leila Annie Fernandez, our young Canadian, had a big win over her not too long ago. So, yeah, someone like Sloan, and I see her and Josie redoing their garage to uh, turn it into a training center on uh, Instagram here. Uh, but maybe it'll benefit her. Bianca, obviously the one that as Canadians, we all think about first and foremost. And uh, we're going to try, if we can, to get some uh, dialogue with her during this break, if if possible, through Tennis Canada and talk about how her recovery is going. How close is she anyways to getting over that knee injury? Who knows at this point in time? Uh, but having her ranking frozen can only be a benefit for her so that when play does resume, she's getting those favorable draws and doesn't have to start opening tournaments up against any of those those big players if her ranking was to slide. Um, any others on the women's side, Ben, that you've got in mind here that are either benefiting or or would rather continue, I suppose, with uh, tournaments and, and life as, as normal? Well, another name I think is benefiting. She finished off 2019 incredibly well with a couple of titles and had a 14-match win streak, but uh, it, it's been a disappo- disappointing run of late for Naomi Osaka. She had the early exit in the third round at the Australian Op- Open, where she lost to Coco Goff and then had a really tough loss in uh, Fed Cup to Sarah Cerebe's Tormo in straight sets. So Naomi Osaka had recently hit a roadblock was not playing her best tennis so you wonder if she could potentially benefit for, from an extended time off now I know she's very disappointed that she won't be able to represent her country at the Tokyo Olympics this year but she will be able to do it next year and then if I'm thinking about players who really didn't want to stop actually Leila Annie Fernandez is the first name that comes to mind she had really been playing the best tennis of her career you mentioned the the win over Sloan Stevens previously the the 
early February month there. She had the big win over Belinda Benchich, getting to that final in uh, Acapulco. She was on fire, and it really felt like, you know, one one or two more tournaments, and she was going to be inside the top 100. Yeah, the kid was surging for sure, and uh, no reason to think that she can't get back to that when play does resume. She's only going to be stronger, you know, physically at that point as she's putting in some time in the gym as well and continuing to develop and mature her game. But you're right, she was on a real hot streak, and it was a shame to see that come to an end for those of us here in Canada that were enjoying that wonderful early season story in 2020. On the men's side, and, and another Canadian that was uh, doing wonderful was Vashik Pospisil, bringing his ranking back into the top 100. And for him, with really no points to defend until the grass court season, uh, we were looking forward to seeing if he could get uh, even higher up towards maybe 50 or better in the rankings. And, and he was definitely on a, on a good streak as well and a player that was playing with confidence. So uh, unfortunate to see Vashik have to put that uh, aside. But hey, you know, big picture, more important things really to, to be concerned with. But if we can be picky as, as tennis analysts, then these are the things that we want to chat about. And uh, what other players on the men's side, Ben, do you think benefit or, or are hindered by this uh, unfortunate hiatus? Well, it's been widely discussed. Certainly Roger Federer is catching a major break in this sense that he, he was... planned it. He planned it. Some people are, are joking or maybe they're not joking on yeah, social media. It's all part of his evil plan, right? Right, right. Uh, but he, he was all prepared to miss the complete clay court swing anyway and rehab his injury. And now it's coming at a time where the tour is completely halted play and who knows for how long. So you can imagine if we do get back to tennis and say we do have Wimbledon happening, I'm penciling in Roger Federer as a definite contender. You look at he was a point away from winning it last year. Now he's had all this time off. What happened when he had an extended break last time, uh, dating back to 2016 into 2017, six months off, comes back and wins the Australian Open. And uh, you think what he's capable of when healthy. Uh, if, if this break works out so he returns at Wimbledon, I, I think it's very much benefiting him, certainly. Uh, Daniil Medvedev had been playing the best tennis of his life and was one of the best tennis players in 2019. That hardcore American summer swing was absolutely fantastic. Six consecutive finals. I feel like he was getting a little tired early 2020, just so much tennis uh, that we saw the fourth round exit at the Aussie Open. Vashuk Pospisil, of course, beat him in Rotterdam, and then he lost early uh, in Marseille, actually, uh, in February. So I felt like he needed some time off and some rest, so I also feel like he's benefiting. And then if I'm looking at guys who are maybe dreading a break, Djokovic and Nadal really come to mind, especially Djokovic, just because he had all the confidence and momentum in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think for Nadal, uh, any break, any time is good for him, just thinking of his knees and his body and the, the constant stress he puts on it. Uh, Djokovic, I don't really think it matters for Novak, the way that he's been playing. He's just seemingly invincible. So break, no break. I don't think there's any dispute that, uh, you know, it's Novak's tour right now and good luck trying to, you know, knock him off of that mantle, uh, not just taking the number one ranking from him, but even beating him in any sort of tournament, it seemed, was very difficult and and he's been playing so incredibly well for so long now that I don't think the break really matters but uh yeah interesting to look and see which which players had been playing well and and which ones maybe are looking at this break as a chance to settle things down and and uh, and reacquire their uh, their their talents at the levels they're capable of uh if we look at the frozen rankings right now Ben uh, maybe you can take us through the Canadians cuz 
it's really encouraging when you look at some of these numbers. Yeah, we were all expecting uh, points to be coming off for Indian Wells and Miami, frankly. So that would have been a loss for four of our Canadians, significant one, actually. But Bianca Andreescu, who was not going to play Indian Wells anyway, uh, gets to keep that number six ranking, which I think is huge for her going forward. If we do get tennis this season, Denis Shapovalov will remain number 15 in the world, which I think is important for him. Felix Ojealia seems still inside that top 25, number 21. And Milos Raonic, number 30 in the world. If those points had, had come off from Indian Wells, we would have seen Raonic uh, drop down to number 47. So that is very significant, especially if you can keep that ranking around there. When If we do get Grand Slam tennis this season, if he gets one of those 32 seeds, that'll be a big difference. Yeah, and if he's back in time, or sorry, if the tour is back in time, I should say, for grass court tennis, that's something that a player like Milos above you know, almost anybody else is greatly going to benefit for shorter points, uh, a, gay, a, a surface sorry, that's, that's just so well-suited to his game style and with the big serve and his propensity to come to the net. Uh, that would be ideal for Milos to uh, hopefully maintain that, that ranking because, as we've said before, a healthy Milos, to me, uh, you know, top 10 may be a bit of a stretch right now, but, but certainly top 20. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think so. Uh, Mike, I know you had a chance to... Uh, get in touch with a couple of tennis players just to see how they are handling things over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, they're on hiatus as well. Uh, Who did you manage to talk to? Yeah, so I'm trying to catch up these days on my tennis writing, which is something that I usually neglect. There's only so many hours in the day, of course, and uh, I do enjoy writing when I have the time for it. So I do some writing for Tennis Ontario. If you're uh, on Twitter, they're at Tennis Ontario, and I do like to showcase some of my work there for a little personal plug here. But uh, I touch base with two young Canadian athletes, Carson Branstein and Jada Bui, and uh, just to see what the two of them are doing. Uh, they are both going the college route, so an article I'm working on right now kind of touches upon uh, taking that alternative uh, path, I guess, as, as many juniors choose to turn pro first and foremost. But Carson is just coming back from injury, so she said that uh, this break actually is giving her a chance to uh, not feel like she needs to rush back or push things too quickly. She's six weeks post-op from a meniscus surgery. She's having a tough go as she's finding it's tough to train. All the gyms are closed. The clubs are closed. She's doing home workouts, but she says that with limited equipment, it is a uh, source of frustration for her right now. Jada Bui, meanwhile, is uh, 10 days into a 14-day self-isolation since she came back from the Dominican Republic. She says she's finding lots of great apps to use for home fitness and that uh, since she's at home with her uh, parents and her sister, they're doing a lot of family stuff, yoga and things to incorporate uh, fitness and family time together. Her dad came up with a really cool idea where he's hung a tennis net from the ceiling of their garage and has Jada hitting tennis balls into a large net. So she's uh, trying to keep her mind and body ready for whenever tennis resumes. And uh, it has been kind of interesting just to follow along on social media and see what creative ways uh, some of these athletes, Canadian or otherwise, are doing to... uh, stay sharp and and continue to uh, develop and hone their tennis skills. Yeah, we've been seeing an amazing uh, stay-at-home challenge that's been circulating through some top players uh, on the ATP and WTA side where either a player is holding their tennis racket and doing a touch challenge using a roll of toilet paper, seeing how many times they can hit a toilet 
paper roll up with their racket or uh, they're doing it soccer style, keeping keeping it up with their feet. And I saw that from uh, what Simona Halep, Karen Hatchinov, uh, among a number of other players. I think uh, Stan Vavrinka has also done it. And uh, the idea is once you do it, you got to challenge five others to do it. So uh, that's been uh, a great little fun game circulating right now on social media. I feel like both tours are pretty united in this sense and, and trying to make the best of what is a, a terrible situation. Yeah. And there is some stuff on there. I know some of it gets kind of old maybe quickly, but I'm enjoying the fact that people are trying to put stuff out there, mm-hmm. not just, you know, not just self-serving reasons, but to entertain and to, to keep us feeling connected, even though we can't see each other and be with each other face to face. You know, a couple of people on Twitter, I do want to give a shout out to, one is uh, Philip Fama, who was with us a few weeks ago. He's at tweener underscore head on Twitter, and he's posting regular content out there, and he's getting quite creative with that as well. Another is uh, at Bastion uh, Fashion, F-A-C-H-A-N. He's got this cool uh, competition with men's and women's tennis fashion where he's done a draw with all sorts of different ATP and WT players putting their best outfits against one another over the years <laughs> and uh i'm not really much for fashion but it is kind of cool to see some of the uh, interesting and some of the more hideous and outrageous outfits over the years that have been there and, and how people lean one way or the other so you know kudos to those people that are making an effort and uh, we're all trying our best to to get through this together collectively and sort of stay in touch how we can and realize that uh you know, we're all we're all united in this uh, this current uh, challenge. Yeah, certainly. I'll give one more shout out as well to uh, WTA player Christy on uh, at K-R-I-S-T-I-E-A-H-N, uh, who is releasing daily, very hilarious TikTok videos, just trying to have a laugh uh, in, in the sense that we're, we're all going through this. But she's making some very creative uh, material that she's posting daily on her Twitter as well. Uh, and Mike, I know we already have our guests lined up for next week's episode, which is to Terrific that uh, people are taking their time to, to come on the program, and, and we're welcoming a top 50 WTA doubles player. Uh, Sharon Fitchman will be coming on next week. Yeah, Sharon Fishman from here in Toronto, and uh, she's been putting up a ton of content, uh, which is making me feel even more like a sloth because she's <laughs> super fit and active. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, she's had a great start to the season, getting back into the top 50 in doubles. She's only been back on tour for the last, I want to say, year and a half or so. And uh, had a great uh, month of February in Mexico with a finalist and a, a win there with her partner, Katarina Bondarenko. Uh, this will be the first time, I believe, that Sharon's been on the podcast with us. So uh, we're looking forward to that and appreciative of her uh, taking time to uh, to join us and share what she's doing during these uh, tough few weeks and, and also about her uh, resurgence as a professional tennis player. Yes, we'll uh, look forward to that. We thank Christopher Clary of the New York Times for joining us this week, you have been listening to Matchpoint Canada.